0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. Our passage that we'll be hearing from today is chapter 1, verses 6, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 9. If you're using the Pew Bibles this morning, you can find our passage on page 801. In our passage this morning, God, he he kind of, he puts his finger on the holy grail of questions that church leaders have asked throughout the centuries how can we get people to care about worship? Everywhere you look in the world, there are these, there, there, there's great concern about the state of worship in the church, and even now there are dozens of organizations and individuals that are aimed at pursuing worship renewal within the people of God. But the very existence of these groups and of this concern points to a very deep heart problem. And here's the deep heart problem. If people are asking how can we get folks to care about worship, it's revealing that we don't often care about worship. Uh, Even in a a Presbyterian church, uh, those of us with the the grand doctrine of God that we get in the Reformed tradition, even us, uh, are prone to often ask the question, is worship worth it? Is worship, everything that we do on Sunday and then through the rest of our lives, is it actually worth it? We usually ask this question, we ponder this reality when life is not going well, and when God seems very far away. And we go through the work of Sunday every week, weekend, week out, but nothing seems to change. The emotions that we experience don't seem uh, to, to budge. God doesn't seem any closer, and then we kind of look out at our neighbors, and we see, you know, it looks like their lives are pretty easy. Is worship worth it? Or we might ask this when life is going really well, and it feels like your life is going really well kind of outside of the spiritual things that you do in your daily basis, and so you might question, if life is going so well over here, because of my own skill and my successes, then is worship worth it? We know the answer is yes, absolutely. But the fact that we ask the question is very telling about the state of our hearts. Well, God's people in the book of Malachi are doing just that. They continue to go through the motions of worship, but without quality. And without deep commitment, they clearly do not think very highly of worship because they secretly wonder, is worship worth it? When we're caught in discouragement and doubt, just like these people were, what we need is someone to come and reignite our faith. And here's the good news. What God says to us in his word today is that he will renew worship. The message that we have this morning is for doubting and despairing people. God says that he will renew and restore our worship. So as we go through the passage, listen to what God says to us. God will restore our worship by reminding us of our duty. God will restore and renew our worship by rebuking our sinful practices, and God will renew our worship by redeeming us in grace. So, with that in mind, brothers and sisters, let's turn now our attention to God's holy word as he speaks to us this wonderful word, promising renewal and challenging us to prize the work that we are here for today. The book of Malachi, chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and you—and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord of Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Brothers and sisters, thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, this is a challenging word, but one that has great comfort and inspiration for us, and so I pray now that you would speak to us through your word preached, that you would strengthen us to hear, that we would have hearts that are ready to accept your ways. Please inspire us in worship by your grace and your goodness and your power and might, and even now. Would you be at work in our hearts so that those of us who doubt the work that we're doing today, who wonder if there's any point to what we're up to in this next little while, Lord, I pray that even now you would be confirming your strength, your power, your grandness and grace and might. Inspire us now, O Lord, through your voice and your word. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. When I was growing up, one of my family jobs was mowing the lawn, and you can probably expect, uh, like most teenagers, young persons, I didn't really enjoy doing it. It was not my favorite thing to do. And, uh, and so I procrastinated on it frequently. Uh, it was hot outside, and so it, it would kind of take any excuse to not really go about the work. It's hot. I might have some friends that are going to do this, and so I would delay on mowing the lawn, and then when I actually got around to it, I would tend to cut corners uh, that would often cause problems down the road and sometimes quite costly problems one day uh, I, was, I was mowing the lawn, and it was really thick because I had delayed on mowing it several times in a row. And so I was mowing the yard, and all of a sudden I heard this awful ka-chunk, ka-chunk from inside the mower. Uh, I had run over the hose. The, the garden hose was coiled up, and I didn't see it. Uh, because I did not inspect the yard before I had started to mow the lawn. I had forgotten a very important step along the way. And the worst part about it was that this was the second time that I had done it. This is the second hose that I had shredded in a pretty short amount of time because I had forgotten to do the thing that I needed to do. See, when you're not interested in doing something... It's really easy to forget some really important details. And one of the reasons that we doubt the value of worship is because simply we have forgotten something that is very important. And so God speaks to us this morning through his word to remind us. God renews our worship this morning by reminding us about our duty. Worship is worth it because we owe it to God. God is glorious and grand. He's the Lord of hosts, like we heard time and time again in our text. He is a great king, like we hear in verse 14. It is our duty to worship him. We owe it to God to give him our worship. And the people had forgotten this. They had started thinking about their worship routine as an insurance policy against suffering. And so when they started to suffer, they started to doubt the value of their worship and their work. Worse still, the priests had failed to remind them about their duty. They had forgotten. They had neglected to remind the people that worship was for God's sake. And that's why this message is particularly aimed at the priests. We hear in verse 6, O priests, you who despise my name. Or chapter 2, verse 1, O priests, this command is for you. God is aiming this message at the priests because it was their job to teach the people, to remind them about the work of worship being for God, and they didn't. and They brought a curse upon themselves. They brought a curse upon the entire people because of their neglect. And so if the priests won't do their job to remind the people, God will. He says through the prophet Malachi, it is your duty to worship me. Every Sunday when we gather for worship, it is for God. We are not here to be entertained. We are here because we owe God our worship. Now, that, that kind of lands on our Western American ears in a weird way. We don't like hearing about people who demand worship. We tend to call those people egotistical. But if we think about God and think that God is egotistical, then we have forgotten how amazing God truly is. Just listen to verse 6. He is our master and our father. God is our master, He's our master because he created us. He owns us. He is in charge of us. And so, therefore, we owe him respect. We owe him honor. But God is not a mean taskmaster. No, he is also our father. He has adopted us into his family by grace He saves us from our sins so that we can be his children. And so we praise him for his amazing power and his authority as our master, but we praise him for his saving grace as our father. Worship celebrates our salvation. And that's why God is so concerned when his people despise his name. That phrase that we heard, Uh, at least four times in the text. God's name is his reputation, and when people fail to properly exalt the name of the Lord, it's like leaving a bad review about God on Yelp, and people will see that bad review, and they will turn away from God, meaning that they're turning away from salvation. That is a huge, huge tragedy. God wants to be praised throughout the entire world, which shows us his heart of mercy. He wants the nations to be saved. That's what it means for his name to be great among the nations. He wants everyone to be in a saving relationship with him. This is a tremendous expression of his grace and love. God deserves to be worshiped. It is our duty to worship God, and it is our duty to worship God rightly. It's our duty to worship God according to the worship that God requires, the mandates that he sets up. He gets to tell us how to worship. We need to worship God rightly, and God wants pure worship. The offerings that the people gave needed to be blameless, without blemish. You couldn't just show up with last night's leftovers and think that that was going to be an adequate offering. No, it needed to be pure. God wants costly worship. The people's offerings represented the great cost of redemption and the great gratitude that they had for their salvation. Salvation is costly. Salvation is highly valuable. And so the offering needed to be as well. God wants genuine worship. Worship had to come from the heart. You couldn't just make a glamorous, extravagant offering and then go your own way and live however you wanted to. Your offering needed to line up with the rest of your life. So God wants pure worship, costly worship, genuine worship, and God wants joyful worship. He wants joyful worship. Yes, it might be work. Yes, it might be costly, but it's rewarding. The people were communing with God as they worshiped, and that is a true delight. Worship is the way that we live out the Westminster Larger Catechism. It's how we live out glorifying and enjoying God forever. And if you forget all of these things, then worship will seem tedious. Worship will seem pointless, and you will fail in your duty to honor God the way that he desires just look at the people in our text. They didn't worship God, and they didn't worship him rightly. They didn't honor him as father or master. They despised his name. They offered impure sacrifices. These animals that were blind or lame or sick, they offered cheap sacrifices. Animals that didn't cost them very much, or it might not have cost them anything if they had stolen them. Their sacrifice was not genuine in any way. It didn't come accompanied by a deep heart of gratitude or repentance, and their sacrifice was certainly not joyful. In fact, the priests complain about the burden of their work. Verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is. What? a weariness. That is the opposite of joyful worship that God desires. So worship was not worth it to them because they had forgotten the wonders of God. And so the first step for renewed worship is to remember your duty to God. You owe God your worship. But worship renewal doesn't just stop with the reminder. We need to know what's true, but we also need to stop doing what's false. And so God renews our worship by rebuking our sinful practices. He calls us out on the things that we do that are wrong. He rebukes our sinful practices. God says through his word, stop offering me mindless worship. The people in the text clearly do not know why they're making these sacrifices, but they are doing it anyway as if the ritual itself would save them. When God says, stop despising my name, they have a very cynical and questioning response. How have we done that? How have we polluted your table? We we did what we asked you to do, right? We made an offering. We checked the box. Are you happy with that? Mindless worship says it doesn't matter why you worship, just do it. And God says, stop. God also says, stop offering me careless worship. The people also clearly do not care about the quality of their worship. They just kind of slop something together and hope that it passes God's test. In our house, we've run into a couple of, uh, of careless mistakes that the previous homeowner somewhere down the line had made. And my favorite of these mistakes uh, is around the pantry, There's some molding around the pantry and apparently when they were installing this pantry, they ran out of molding. And so all of the molding around all three edges looks great. It's all uniform until you get to the bottom six inches when clearly they just used whatever else they had on hand. And so this other thing that they had on hand, like, it it looks kind of right. It looks like molding, but it is obviously from a complete different piece of wood. And I can see them in that moment making this installation and just kind of saying, eh, it doesn't matter, just get the job done. And the people's worship is like that. We can hear them saying, eh, the quality doesn't matter, just offer God something. A blind animal, a sick animal, a stolen animal doesn't matter. Careless worship says it doesn't matter if it's good, just do it. And God says, stop. God also says, stop offering me selfish worship. Worship is about God. Worship is about honoring his name, but the people had made it about their own personal benefit, especially the priest's See, the priests were the ones who actually stood to lose if Israel made faithful sacrifices. If they had stopped making these impure sacrifices, the priests would have lost out because the sacrifices were their mode of income. God laments in verse 10, if only one of you would shut the gates and stop offering this mindless, careless worship, well, why didn't they stop it? Why didn't any of the priests intervene? It's because the priests benefited from it, right or wrong. At the end of the day, they still got paid, and that's all they seem to care about. Selfish worship says it doesn't matter if it's right. As long as it benefits you in some way, just do it. God rightly rejects such worship, and so would you. We would treat something like this in exactly the same way as God does. Just imagine a child inviting her mother to a Mother's Day celebration at the local school. And the mother says, thank you. This is wonderful. Could you tell me a little bit more about it? How would the mother feel if the child responded, oh, I don't really know why we're doing it. I think we'll probably just throw something together. I hope I get some ice cream out of it. How would that land in a Mother's Day celebration? The mother would not be honored with the spirit of that gift. And in the same way, mindless, careless, selfish worship does not honor God. And it doesn't give us what our souls actually need, which is real communion with God. These sinful practices, they come from a doubting and sinful heart, and they also feed a doubting and sinful heart. And so it is God's grace That he calls us out. He wants us to change for the better. So, where do we need to change? Where do we need to change? What are some of our sinful practices? Well, here's one way you can find out. Just ask yourself, why do you come to church? Why do you come to church? If you come to church, because that's just what your parents did, Or kind of in the back of your mind, you think, I'm just pretty sure that's what Christians are supposed to do. And so that's why you come to church. As if God doesn't care about why you worship, then you are at risk of mindless worship. If you come to church... And you mumble through the songs and you plan your week during the sermon and you toss some cash in the offering on your way out the door as if God doesn't care about how you worship, then you are at risk of careless worship. And if you come to church because the fellowship snacks are awesome and the worship team is on fire, and there are some people there that you're hoping to meet, as if worship exists only for your personal gain, then you are at risk of selfish worship. At the end of the day, this is the question that we all need to ask. Are you here for God, or are you here for you? Well, God wants all of us. He wants wholehearted worship from every single one of us. And and think about what that really means. That means that God desires you. God desires all of you, every bit of you. He craves you. The Lord of the universe, this God of hosts, wants you. It's such a wonderful, merciful, amazing thing that God wants you. So don't withhold yourself from him. Don't hold part of yourself back and only give him part of your life or part of your heart. Give yourself to God. God renews our worship by rebuking our sinful practices so that we can offer our whole selves to him. And this, in the end, is a true delight for us. And that actually leads to the final way that God renews our worship. God renews our worship by redeeming us in grace. God redeems us in grace, and this is the most vital piece of our worship renewal. You can think of it like building a fire. When you build a fire, you need to stack the wood properly, right? And you need to clear out all the other stuff that gets in the way of this fire. But even with properly stacked wood and kind of an empty space, you still need the spark. Remembering our duty to God and being rebuked for our sinful practices will not light the fire of worship renewal alone. God's grace is the spark that lights the fire. John Calvin says, Men will never worship God with a sincere heart, until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. God's mercy finishes the work of renewal. And when God redeems us in grace, we will want to worship. Our hearts will desire to give God his due. There is so much that we can praise God for, even in this passage. We can praise God for his promises of grace. The heart of this passage is the promise of redemption. God is a promise keeper. And his covenant, like we heard in chapter 2, his covenant was one of life, one of peace. Because he keeps his word, the people actually can have the confidence to, like we hear in verse 9, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. God was not pleased with them, but they can repent. And when you're guilty and you receive a second chance, when you hear the words, I forgive you, let me help you to try again, that is something that will make us want to worship, that makes our hearts glad. We can praise God for his promises of grace. We can also praise him for sending prophets and pastors. God was indeed unhappy with the people's unfaithfulness, but he didn't give up on them. God sent the prophet Malachi to rouse them to faithful worship. And through his prophetic word, God worked redemption into the people. Like we'll see in chapter 3, the people have a revival at the end of this book, and it's a wonderful thing to behold. God cares so much about the people that he sends prophets to tell them about his word. Now, on this side of redemptive history, God doesn't send prophets anymore. But he does appoint pastors, and it's our job as pastors and elders to give you God's good word of redemption every week. Every single Sunday, you should listen to God speaking to you in the preached word and through the songs and the liturgy. God is reclaiming your soul week by week by week here in church because he wants you. He wants you, and so throughout history, he sent prophets, and now he sends pastors to tell you that he loves you. And So we can praise him for his persistent grace. So we can praise God for his redemptive promises. We can praise God for the prophets and the pastors that he sends to us, but most importantly, we can praise God for one great priest. We have one great priest that God has sent to us. If there is one problem in the text, it is the priests. They failed to uh, tell the people what was their, their job. They failed to inspire the people. They failed to guard the worship of the people. They failed in their duties to the people, and they failed in their duties to God. They found their work a gigantic burden, even while they allow this improper worship so they can get their own paycheck at the end of the day. So if the people need new hearts, they're going to need a new priest. And so God gives us a new priest. God gives us Jesus, and Jesus is the one great priest that we really need. Just think about all these things that God says in chapter two, what a good priest does. Jesus does this far beyond anyone else. Jesus offered true instruction. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus taught the people the word of God because he is the word of God, Jesus is true instruction in the flesh. And then he speaks to us through his word that we have in the scriptures so that we can know God and that we can know our duty to God. Jesus offered true instruction and Jesus rebuked corrupt worship. He had no time for people that were going to try and take advantage of God's people. He cleansed out the temple of people that had turned it into a marketplace. He kicked them all out so that the nations could come back into God's temple and offer God pure worship. Jesus walked with God in peace and uprightness. He was the completely sinless priest. He didn't have to offer anything for himself so that he could offer our sacrifices on our behalf. No, he is pure and sinless himself. And then he, as our spotless priest, gives the one pure and costly sacrifice himself. He is the spotless, sacrificial lamb, and it is the final, the perfect sacrifice. God's wrath is now turned away forever. Our sins are completely forgiven because of his sacrifice, and finally, Jesus did not consider his work to be a burden. Jesus was not reluctant to take up his task. He willingly endured the cross. You are not a burden to Jesus. You are not a bother. He is happy to serve you because he loves you. Our great high priest gives us new hearts through the Holy Spirit. And once we receive his incredible grace, we will want to worship. Far from being a burden or a waste of time, our worship is a privilege. It is a privilege for us to worship and commune with our Savior. Jesus Christ renews our worship by redeeming us in grace, and he's done it all over the world. Just think about it today, Sunday morning, in time zone after time zone, All around the world, Christians praise God, fulfilling Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Jesus does what no mere human can do. Church leaders throughout history have wondered how to make people care about worship. There have been all kinds of strategies All kinds of techniques that have been given to make people care about worship. Every week, I get an email from some conference or other that wants pastors to come so that we can teach the congregation about worship, renewal, get people to care. But here's the truth. How can church leaders renew the church's worship? We can't. Only God can renew our worship And thankfully, he is eager to do this. In the 1500s, the 1550s around, a guy named Thomas Cranmer was tasked with a project of worship renewal. He was writing the Book of Common Prayer, which was going to be used by the Anglican Church to shape their entire worship and their entire prayer lives. And he in this immense position of power, could have leaned on any number of human techniques to try and get people to believe that worship was actually worth it, but he knew that such renewal only came from God. And so he began every daily prayer with a quote from Psalm 51. Lord, open our lips, and our mouths shall proclaim your praise. Lord, open our lips and our mouths shall proclaim your praise. That's the sequence. Lord, open our mouths, open our lips, and then we shall proclaim your praise. The key to worship renewal is not human ingenuity. It is God's grace. And so for you who are weary and tired, and doubting the value of what we do here every day, turn to God. Turn your eyes back to the Lord. Remember who God is. He is your creator. He is your redeemer who loves you so, so much. Repent of any sinful practices or any sinful beliefs that you have entertained or indulged and then turn to Christ. Turn to your Savior and adore him because of his mercy that he gives to you. Yes, friends, we may have a worship problem, but God is going to fix it. Indeed, God has already begun fixing it in Christ. Whenever we ask, is worship really worth it? God comes to the rescue. He does what human effort alone cannot. He renews our worship by giving us himself. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your might and power and grace. We thank you for Christ. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who works salvation deep in our hearts, who unites us to Christ so that our lives are now truly in heaven. We have so much to praise you for. And we repent of the worldliness that creeps in and distracts us from your glory and tempts us to do things that we should not do. Lord God, forgive us. Lord, renew our worship. Be glorified in what we do today and every day. Renew our worship so that you would be glorified, so that the nations would turn to you. And humbly, we ask, renew our worship so that we can experience your peace. We long for communion with you, and we praise you that in Christ we have it. Bless us, we pray, and be glorified for the sake of Christ, and in his name we ask, amen.